You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Keneal Joyce, who is an executive coach, leadership developer, culture builder, speaker, wife, mother of two, and podcaster. Her podcast is called Aloud if you want to check it out. Throughout her career, Keneal has worked with some of the world's most transformative entrepreneurs and companies, including leaders at LinkedIn, Dropbox, Snap, Slack, Whole Foods, Amazon, and Disney, plus hundreds of CEOs and founders and leaders in technology and beyond. Truly an impressive list. Keneal's mission in life and work is to positively impact the world, challenging each of us to draw upon our unique gifts to take on the world's most pressing issues. Her three impact priorities are addressing climate change, empowering women, and democratizing access to creative and entrepreneurial opportunities. That's a great list. Keneal has over 20 years of experience leading and advising innovative companies. She has a BA in mass communications from UCLA, a master's and PhD in organizational behavior from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. And her research has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals. She is a former professor of management at the London School of Economics and at the Stanford D School. On this show, which is a little different than some of our others, we discuss the power of checking in with yourself and others, the difference between a coach versus a therapist, the job of a CEO, who needs a coach and how they help, building culture in startups, what it means to, to have a shadow side or an X'd out part of yourself or how that's reflected in the organization. We talk about zone of genius and so much more. We start off a little bit different. It gets more personal, but it's an important one. So please stay tuned. Keneal, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start with a check-in. Okay. Uh, I love it. You want to go first? Hmm. Sure. What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite form of check-in you want to do? Lead us. Go ahead. Okay. I'm going to start with an unarguable check-in, which you know know well. So I'm checking in with rising energy in my chest, some creative feelings and excitement. And my next thought is... I love that I have no idea what we're about to talk about. Wonderful. I'm in. I'm taking a few breaths and I'm feeling tension release in my shoulders and this surge of energy and excitement when you said something about the unknown. Mm -hmm. So what's the purpose of doing a check-in like this? Like what's the value in this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it because uh, I also always start my podcast with check-ins and to me, I mean, and and meetings and everything, because to me, the check-in is, it's an opportunity for our bodies and our minds to arrive in the present new um, space, the new social environment, the new physical space. You know, even if we're sitting in the same chair 
in the same room. When we're on Zoom, every time you you have a new person dial in or you, you dial in and meet them, you're really being transported on some level of your psyche into a new space. And it's so important for our animal bodies to get to feel safe and arrive. And so partly it's just about checking out where am I now? And part of the where am I is internal. You know, what's, what's my body experiencing? What's the nature of my mind? And even being able to answer those questions requires a higher degree of presence than most initial beginnings to meetings, which often are intentionally superficial. And this one, it, it lets each of us check in and see how am I like, really, if I'm really honest, how am I right now? What's, what's going on within me. And then also, you know, when we're really present doing that, the curiosity about each other is so it is what it, it is, what there is. It's like the air becomes curiosity and suddenly I'm, I'm able to get fully present, just listening to you check in and we can better understand how each of us is showing up into this call. So I just learned something about you that maybe if we never checked in, even people who feel like they're really close to you may not know that something about the unknown is really exciting to you. No, probably life history with you. Yes, they would know. <laughs> uh, but that's, it's a rare opportunity. I think for most of us to actually just see like, how am I, what am I feeling? Uh, what am I sensing? What, and what are, what are the thoughts that are passing through my mind? So this is a practice you recommend to your clients? Absolutely. I think this may have been the very first video that I ever put online was me and Terry Lee talking about check-ins and why they're important. And yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually so fast and easy. If we wanted to do a fast one, want to do fast one, do you know, red, yellow, green? No, let's do it. Oh, it's great. So this is, I learned this one from the guys over at reboot who, um, I used to do a lot of work with reboot and the jury Colonna's, um, organization. So reboot loves red, yellow, green. And I do too. It's, um, you know, what color are you now? And red would be, I am, you know, something big just happened, just got in a car accident, or I got a, a really, you know, gnarly call from my board member or my ex-girlfriend. And I'm super distracted. I'm not even sure I should really be in this meeting right now, because that's the only thing I want to be dealing with or thinking about. That's red. Yellow would be, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm arriving. I'm, I might have some hesitations, other things on my mind. I'm not yet fully present. I might be getting there, uh, but I'm a little distracted by something or a little hesitant, not quite sure. And then green is I'm fully clear, present and aware. And this is the only place that I am right now. How often do you ever in green? So then it's just so, so easy. You know, I, I, I noticed that, especially when we're beginning, when I'm beginning working with an executive team, um, most answers tend to be, there's usually about one that's red on any given team, no matter the size. Then there's about, and that person is usually the one who's holding the red energy, the energy of like distraction or cynicism, or I'm not sure this is going to work. And I'll, that's all healthy. And, and we invite all of that. None, none of it's good or bad. 
but then most people say that they are yellowish green, somewhere in between. And as we begin working together and each leader has their own personal experience that it's actually okay, no matter how you feel is actually okay. And it's allowed and, and every emotion is allowed. Then we start hearing more greens because they're allowing themselves to be fully present. They're not needing to X out any part of themselves or any experience they're having so they can actually be there. So it does change pretty quickly. Fascinating. I think I'm, yeah, if it's allowed to be between, I'm probably green, yellow, because I'm mm -hmm. kind of watching the clock and thinking about the next questions and wanting to sort of manage the podcast. So yeah, I'm not <laughs> fully present. Well, I love that you're managing it. So that I don't, I'm not, I'm not managing it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is how I like to be. Yeah. So I'd be like yellow, green. And okay. you answer. Mm -hmm. uh, same yellow, green thinking about you managing the podcast, aware of time, yeah. how, how I'm luxuriating in it. Now you mentioned Reboot. I'd love to hear more about that and then any other groups that have really informed your practice. Yeah. Yeah. Reboot was uh, when I first realized, when I first realized that I was a coach and not a, you know, that, that in, my, in my heart, I was a coach and I was not just a strategist. I was not, not just a strategist, but for me, there was a, there was a way that I was thinking of myself as a strategist and it wasn't really owning my zone of genius. And I came to this epiphany and then out of nowhere, Khalid Halim, who's a co-founder of Reboot, some, saw something that I had tweeted to Jerry and reached out to me on Twitter. And Twitter is one of the ways that most of the great things in my life have happened. I love Twitter. And anyway, he reached out and I, I got to interview with them. And then I got to coach a bunch of amazing people and go to their boot camp. And, you know, Reboot has just such an artful, they've constructed such an artful practice and community and set of rituals. And uh, there's a genius in the way that the four of them come together. And there's, you know, there's others, but I really, really loved my time with Reboot. Other groups I've worked with, I worked a lot with Evolution. So Evolution is a kind of a collective, I guess somewhat similar structure to Reboot, but it's a collective of coaches and they're fantastic. And if any listeners here, if you're interested in finding a coach, um, I would be happy to help you kind of navigate and help match you with a coach. Um, within that ecosystem. I know each of them deeply, deeply, deeply. And what I love about it is just the emphasis on community between the coaches and community with the, uh, you know, the, the founders and the other leaders that they work with as culture workers and coaches. And so there's a, there's a really deep and vulnerable bond. We know each other well, we work on each other. Um, so that's been a really formative um, piece of my, my life was when I was a partner there. And I still am in partnership with them. I'm operating really independently these days for, you know, variety of reasons we can talk about later. And then lastly, I'd say it's um, the conscious leadership group. And that's how you and I became connected, Miles, right? Yes. I, I, so, I participate in uh, CLG's forums. Yeah. And probably that's the one, you know, if you watch my, my work, that's the one that you'll see most clearly come through. 
um, to me that the model of conscious leadership, which is fundamentally asking yourself the question with non-judgmental honesty and curiosity, the question of, am I in a state of trust or am I in a state of threat? And then they have a, a framework and some practices that go around that. And this group walks, they walk the talk like I've never seen anywhere else. The level of integrity is, it's, it's, it's unworldly. <laughs> it's, it's like just a pure devotion to their, this way of being that they have they've really honed in on and have been able to encapsulate and make um, powerful. And so these are all things I bring into my work, certainly all those influences. And then plus just, you know, intuition, other kinds of training, all the other things that we all bring, but yeah, those three have been profound. So basic question, what mm -hmm. is a coach and who needs one? Hmm. Who needs, let's start with who needs one, who needs one is those who are willing to be coached. Nobody needs a coach. Some, some of us may be willing to be coached. I only coach the willing. So if I'm coaching you, it's because you chose to work with me. I know there are, there are many companies who bring in a coach and assign you a coach, and then you're off to the races working with that coach. And I think there's a lot of power to that. That's the kind of coaching that I personally do is it would not be friendly to expect that of somebody who didn't opt in. It's really an opt-in process for me. And I think always, you know, if you think about each, each of us is a, an assortment of different parts of ourselves, every, within every coach, there's the one who coaches the willing and within every client, there's one willing part, at least maybe more. And so I think always the, the, the only one who's, who's willing to change is the willing one. So it, you know, it doesn't always need to be such a complete opt-in process like I have, but those who need a coach, it's, I'm willing to look at myself. I'm willing to feel my feelings. I'm willing to be more interested in how, in my impact on others than I am in preserving everything. I think I'm so right about, and I'm willing to do that. And this is maybe more my, my clientele. I'm willing to do that because I have gifts and I'm willing to get uncomfortable so that those gifts can be brought to the world and be of service. And it's almost like there's like a duty that goes with that. And there's so many kinds of coaches. So I don't, I definitely don't want to over generalize on that answer. I, I suspect, however, that you and I have been exposed to similar types of coaching. That's really, it's a whole person, it might be executive coaching, but it's whole person coaching. So you're not telling someone how to do their job or how to make better decisions. Sometimes direct. I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I do. You know, I, I've done a lot of work with early stage founders, especially a little earlier in my career, before so many of them now they're running big companies, the, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And so it's, it's changed over time, which is just what happens. I love working with like new CEOs, you know, 25 year olds who have never been a CEO or managed a budget before who don't know what that job even is. I love that. To me, it's like, if you can just stay within the bounds of what a CEO is, then you're going to be facing all of the same 
conscious leadership challenges that you'll face, you know, 10 years down the road, if you're one of those fortunate few, and cause you're still going to bump up against, wow. Like if I'm really going to focus on bring together a kick-ass team, keep money in the bank and hold and set the vision, then that's, that means there's a lot I'm not going to try to control. So if I only use those three levers, which is how I teach my CEOs, then I now suddenly am confronted with all the ways that I don't trust myself, others, life in general, and what a cool constraint to get to work with, to confront your own, you know, heroing tendencies or villain tendencies. And I love working with them early because, you know, a lot of, a lot of CEOs come in because they have a, a you know, for, for me, it's, it's t- technology background. I work with, you know, mostly tech and, um, they may not have had a lot of exposure to even a framework to understand how culture gets created and gets maintained. So I love being directive with them when I see that there's a clear direction and that's not, that's not, you know, quote, traditional coaching. And that's where I put on my advisor hat. Um, and it feels much more like football team coaching than it is like coaching, you know, it's definitely not, I'm, because there's just a reality that there's some experience that folks don't have, and it can be beneficial to just have a framework and then you can experiment in such a bigger way. So when you're saying coaching like this, mm-hmm. uh, as you move your arms around, is, is that sort of more towards therapy or like, what's the difference? Uh, what's the difference between therapy and coaching? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely go to that place. I'm, I'm not a therapist. Um, I, I happen to have a PhD, but it's not in clinical psychology. I have a PhD in business, right? So it's a organizational behavior, but I'm, I am not a therapist. And I was even thinking last night, how important <laughs> that distinction is. And it's very, very important to make that clear, but we are going to look, you know, I've, I've heard people say a coach um, works with the here and now and moving forward. And a therapist works with the here and now and looking back to make sense of the here and now. And I definitely look at both. And I find that with some clients, a lot tends to be about the past. And that's, that's, that's where their presence is, is in, is in working through that and dealing with that. And for other clients, a lot of it is getting into the present. And probably I would say for both extremes of that spectrum, my, I consider my role more to be, can we get into the present? So I think a, a therapist, I, I'm not even sure how to define a therapist's job, but that, that is, that is what I've heard. And they have clinical training and a, a level of professional responsibility that they have been sworn into. And I'm, I'm a big believer in professionalism. So I, I, I think that working with a coach and a therapist at the same time is awesome. You can connect your coach and your therapist. If you like, you don't have to, you can change coaches and or therapists as many times as you want to. And they, they can be complimentary. You can work with five coaches at the same time. If you want to, everyone's going to bring a different flavor, but sometimes you just have a feeling. I just need to tell my stories and be heard and validated and have someone help me make sense of patterns that I may not see that are coming from my past. And I would say, then go to a therapist. One distinction I've heard is that therapy is about working with trauma or like psychological injury in some way, much Mm -hmm. more. And coaching Mm -hmm. is 
okay, you've, you've generally addressed your injuries, but you're working to be higher performance. Do you, do you agree with that model? Yes and no. I, I do see that therapy is a lot about dealing with injury and trauma, and that's really lifelong work. Trauma, it's, there's not like a, a clear stage that you pass out of when you've dealt with your trauma and suddenly you're in the realm of coaching. Most founders in my experience have trauma. So if, if, if it's like, I'm, I'm not going to receive any coaching because I still need to work on my trauma. I'd, I'd say like, let's bring it with you, work on it. And as you're growing and learning as a normal adult human being, you have permission to also be supported in your day-to-day and in how you want to operate in the roles that you play in your life and bringing some different energy and a different perspective in. So the, you know, trauma in particular is really interesting when it comes to founders, because often it is our, it is our very trauma that creates the seed for the genius that we are going to bring to the world through our vision and through the vision of what we're creating in our company. Um, we're often trying to resolve a trauma by creating whatever it is that we're creating, our service, our product, our platform. And I, to me, that's, that, that's like the, that's the gold. So often there's so much shadow wrapped around our trauma. And so that's therapy is so, I mean, it's been profound in my life is easing up my tension around my traumas. And some of us get traumatized much more easily than others, especially if we're empaths or if we're, you know, highly sensitive people. And I am both so easy for me to get traumatized, but each of those traumas, once I, once that there was ease around it, and I could actually allow whatever the learning or the message was that came through that trauma to become part of my way of understanding the world or myself, then I could, I could hone the gifts. I could mine them. And in a clean way versus coming from just shadow. So like the repressed hidden parts of myself that I don't want to deal with. Now I'm not claiming at all that I've dealt with all my trauma or that I have no shadow operating. Like I absolutely do. And to me, it's just, you know, it's all good. It's a, it's a lifelong learning process and it's fun. So many things I want to talk about. I, I just wanted to underscore, I know it's a little ways back, but your, your model of CEO uh, job as keep money mm-hmm. in the bank, hold, hold the vision and build a great team. I mean, I just want to really underscore that. You said something about founders, like a lot of founders or many founders, something like that have trauma. And do you think mm-hmm. that it's higher incident in founders or just generally people have trauma? You know, the social scientist in me says, I don't have enough data to give you statistical significance, but in my experience, and I've worked with probably a hundred founders at this point, yes, higher, higher, certainly higher. And it's that creative independent impulse that is often associated with the high sensitivity and seeing things just differently that makes it more likely for an, an event to traumatize you. So an event might traumatize a highly sensitive person, but does not traumatize a a non-highly sensitive person. And Gabor Mate talks a lot about this in his book. 
So it's really that there's, there is a connection between, and these, these, you see all of these with entrepreneurs and founders, there's a connection between, you know, trauma and high sensitivity and ADHD. Those three things are highly correlated because there's actually a causal connection that goes between them. There being, being born highly sensitive person makes you more likely to be traumatized by, you know, occurrences in life. I'm not going to say everyday occurrences, but occurrences that, um, for whatever reason, impact the emotional and the psychic body in a way that forms it and creates little scars. And the, the form of hypervigilance and the, the results shows up as what looks like lower executive functioning and an, and a quote inability to pay attention. And the way that a lot of high achievers and highly intelligent people deal with this is they intensely focus their attention. They do hyper-focus and they apply it to something that is challenging enough to stimulate them. And this is another thing that goes with ADHD is that need for a, a certain level of stimulation that's often quite a bit higher than the average person. And that need for stimulation becomes it's stimulation is so worth it. Challenge is so worth it. They've already given up on being normal. They've got, they, they might even have a bone to pick by the time they graduate from high school because they're so sick of being, you know, told that they're not paying attention when in fact they know they're paying attention to so many more things. So, so you come out with this little rebellious streak, this, this high sensitivity, this streak of independence and, and also the trauma. And that is the perfect cocktail to create a founder. I, I hear, I hear so many experienced leaders who come out of corporate, who are raised in a corporate environment, come out and a criticism they often have for their founder. And there's a stage where this often, you, you, you remember like the stage where this often happens, where it's a lot of really experienced folks who come in and they haven't been in a startup. That's not where they were raised is like, whoa, we're so scattered. We're going all over the place. And it's, it's usually quite valid feedback at the point that they're brought in quite valid. And also was partly why this startup still exists to begin with, because it comes from that. It's, there's, a, there's just a unique way that that personality type is so nimble and is able to shift gears and see things from so many perspectives so quickly is really good at pivoting and adjusting and changing. And, and that's what you need in those first several early stages. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on giving circle. I think there's a fascinating paradox that entrepreneurs build bureaucracy to some yes. extent, right? Yes. What talking about. <laughs> Or they hire, they hire the silver bullet COO to build the bureaucracy. Fair enough. They Maybe they don't part. always do it personally, <laughs> but they're creating organizations that when successful scale and grow and need the bureaucracy that they, they bring in and then There's don't want to work there death. maybe. <laughs> There's like a little death that happens there too, because the relationships that felt so like friends and like deep friends and family. And then there becomes a, you know, like a valid need to be professional and that, it changes. It's like 
people who've dedicated several years of their young adulthood and, and really haven't developed as many friends outside perhaps. And then suddenly the, the people who were their close friends are now, there needs to be a layer like between them because it's really time to button up. And it's, it's true for the business. And I think it's also, there's like a, there's a weird grieving period that happens there in the middle. So did you ever experience that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, certainly. I even had an employee who was wise enough to say, I only work at this stage to this stage. And when, it, when yes. we get to this stage of, I, I can't remember exactly, 50 employees, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave. That's great. And That's so great. I was totally blown away. But I do remember, you know, distinct stages as a founder, I think, for me, I think around 20 people, 15, 20, where you really like, it's almost impossible to go out to lunch together. Like mm-hmm. that's a transition. Yeah. Amazon, they talk about the two pizza team type thing. So it's like, yeah. there's a transition around that. And then I think there's a transition around 50 mm-hmm. to a hundred, you know, depending on your personality and your, your skills at kind of keeping a lot of balls in the air. Mm-hmm. You can, I think past 50, it's very hard for a CEO to really be directly involved in kind of each employee's work. It yeah. can happen sooner, but certainly by, by then. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, when you get about 50 to 150, somewhere in there, like you, you're getting above Dunbar's number, right? And so yes. it's just like the relationships are too much. And then to me, there was another, like for me as a founder, not talking about the employees grieving about losing a relationship with the founder, but as a founder, I don't know, somewhere around a few hundred that I really like 300, 400. I was like, I don't know everyone's name. And yeah. I don't think I'm going to. And I didn't hire them. I really tried hard to meet a lot of people that we hired mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. on, but it doesn't, it, I couldn't always remember their names. Yeah. And uh, that was painful because I really felt like I should. I had this story mm-hmm. that I should know everyone's name. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I think then there was another one as a founder and get even bigger where I didn't even recognize the people. Mm-hmm. Like I would see people, they would look familiar. I'd be in the grocery store and I'd think, is that because they work at the company that I run <laughs> or just because I've seen them before? <laughs> yeah. And that's so embarrassing. <laughs> and that, that, I felt like I was doing such a bad job as a leader when I didn't even, like, I wasn't really sure who worked for me. Yeah. Not for me, but for the organization. Right. Well, that's an interesting transition too, right? Are yeah. they working for me? Or are they working for the organization? And there's a yeah. big long gray period there. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it strikes me that you, you probably are really good with names and faces if you lasted that long. Yeah. I mean, I tried hard. It was really important to me. Yeah. Really important to me to, to try to know everyone. What's yeah. important to you about that? Hmm. Something about valuing people, something about mm-hmm. like having an ideal of what, what a good leader was that like cared about people belief that like that's where you know high performance would come from like building a, a culture of people felt seen and valued um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then and that but that's a lot to do on your own how did how did you learn to i guess i have a question for you yeah go for it All right how did you learn to scale that down to bring people feeling valued and known down if you can't be the one to do that how did you bring it down very good question 
And it's something I wanted to talk to you about is how founder strengths, I believe, can sometimes become the weakness in the organization. Um, yes. And so, you know, perhaps because I worked so hard at that, like the organizational capacity didn't come along as quickly as it should have. Mm-hmm. You know, tried to build in a very explicit culture, you know, like this is what our values are. These are the behaviors that we want. Mm-hmm. Build in a recognition program around that. So, you know, peer to peer, you could catch someone doing right, the right mm-hmm. thing, and then mm-hmm. bring that forward that everyone could see and then tell those, share those stories in, in regular group meetings, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. having regular, what we call like open breakfast or, you know, uh, and had different leaders in the organization lead those and kind of ask me anything questions, uh, you know, spent time with leadership, like, you know, 25, 30 type scale, try to spend a lot of time with them modeling the behavior that I wanted them to have with their employees, Mm -hmm. you know, things like this, but it it never felt quite good enough. Hmm. What's your Enneagram type miles? I'm a three. Okay. Yeah. We see that. (laughs) say more yeah the never quite good enough yeah and so i mean so thoughtful your approach to to doing that i mean that's really what what my peers and i would advocate for is don't let it happen by accident like really think about how are you going to like what what do you stand for how will you role model this and that's the way it's not, how will I teach it? It's how will I role model it? And then, you know, which are the interactions that are so important to prioritize because they're really high impact in terms of the culture. And, you know, like those, the meetings with those 25 to 30, those are super high leverage. And so maximizing, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're coming in, you're not making these purely just a tactical drill you're treating them as a culture building opportunity that if you pass it, it's lost. And then you have a culture by accident. And since, you know, the, the shadow that we bring into our companies as founders, that shadow is usually so closely coupled with the vision and mission of the company, which is not a bad or a good thing. It's just an is, uh, but that, the shadow is going to manifest in the culture. You can bet on that. You can, you know, you can do a lot of work on your shadow and you will certainly have a better experience, but whatever that shadow is, is going to show up. And I can point to how that's true for, for me, for my, you know, for the, my leadership in my own family, can you my, give an example? my company. Sure. Can you- so shadow, shadow is a, is I guess a psychological term comes out of Jungian psychology and it is about the parts of ourself that we repress, deny, or disown. So it's the parts, the, so the parts of you that you wish were not there, that you don't want to see, you don't want to be responsible for, you may not even know that they are operating. And one of the ways that we can find our own shadow is by noticing when we get triggered. And if so if I get triggered by somebody else about something about what they did or something about them, and you know, triggering is a very distinct sensation, right? It's like we quick, like we don't even choose really to react to it. It's a mm, 
physiologically, I, I'm suddenly on fire and I'm maybe I'm lashing out or I feel really like I want to hide or whatever my trigger response is. That trigger means I have just seen my own shadow. I have actually projected all the parts of myself I don't like out somewhere else, usually onto someone else. So anytime I'm really blamey about, about someone out there, I need to look at how is that actually true of me? So, oh, I hate how you're so disorganized. How is it true that I'm so disorganized? I hate how you're so distracted. How is it true that I'm so distracted? Why are you so rigid? I must be rigid. So if I'm triggered, I can start learning. What are the parts of me that I haven't really been willing to love yet? Because if I can't, if I can't accept it and allow it and appreciate it, I certainly can't integrate it. And then I can't get the strength that comes out of that. So it's that it's like the, you know, you talked about when your strengths are too strong or the, the, the founder's strengths end up leading to certain deficiencies in certain ways. This is another, another thing that's interesting is we often have strengths that are not yet claimed and they're hidden in our shadow, but we are kind of demonizing them. And so we're not really able to get the gold quite yet. So if, if, but if I'm fully willing to accept that I am a person who's distractible, we can now work with that and we can actually create an organization that makes that an asset. And that's, that's a thing that founders probably have the most luxury in doing. And what's really powerful is when the founder allows each of their employees to do that kind of work and to bring in like the jewels that are hidden in their shadow. Yeah, I'm reminded of, of my first startup. Uh, I worked pretty hard to X out to like not be playful, to be like mm -hmm. work oriented, serious. Mm -hmm. I got feedback that people thought I was like intimidating at times or scary. Mm -hmm. But I was reacting against like seeing my father joke around at work and like telling jokes that people found, uh, you know, like, <laughs> not necessarily appropriate all the time. And so I was like, I'm not going to be like that. And so what I've learned more recently is a connection between, you know, play, creativity, sexuality, being very connected mm -hmm. and also very much X'd out sexuality, like mm -hmm. very much on the lookout for like no sexual harassment. We'll treat everyone well. Mm -hmm. We succeeded on that. But mm -hmm. I also think that through those two impulses, I really X'd out creativity in the organization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. it hurt us. Yeah. This is a complicated one these days. Yeah. Because the, the creative, you know, when, when, when we were checking in at the very beginning of this episode and I said, I felt creative feelings, I mean, that the, 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 the category of feelings in which creative feelings falls is you could also label it sexual feelings and it include, it includes, um, desire it in, of, of all kinds. It includes, uh, attraction and inspiration. It includes ambition and drive and motivation. It includes creativity and all of that, all of those things are just the primal creative impulse. And it's probably as close as we get to our true spirits or our connection to source or to God is that we are creators. If you look at human beings, like it's unarguable. I think that that's the main thing that we do as <laughs> we create. And sometimes we do creative destruction and maybe a lot of the time, but we are hell bent on making and inventing and creating. 
And that's partly that, that is the seeds of our own destruction. So I, I love, I love this as a, as a thing to be thinking about right now, because I, you know, I'm a feminist. I, I am a believer that there are power structures that are operating. And I know that there's a story there. And I also think that's a really widely held story. And so it has power and it's important to be mindful of it. And it's super important to not X out the whole entire category of creative and sexual feelings. Like it's, it's essential. So how do you do that? Well, you can feel your feelings and not act on them. And that's probably the main thing that I work with my clients on, whether they, you know, know it explicitly or not. Really the reason that we end up creating drama in our lives period and in our companies is because we're trying to avoid feeling a feeling. I don't want to feel scared. So I'm going to try to control. I don't want to feel sad. So I'm going to move on to the next thing. I don't want to feel angry. So I'm not going to give you any feedback or request any feedback. And I don't want to feel any sexual feeling. Suddenly now it's, so I'm not going to get really excited and create anything. So there's a difference between sexual feelings to a person, toward a person versus real recognizing that all the, the, the locus of all feeling is, is here in the self. So if I'm scared, it's not because you made me scared. It's because I feel scared. And maybe I made myself scared with the story that seems really true right now. And probably there's both a wisdom in the fear. And there's also some, some way that the fear is hiding something from me. And so my job as a leader is to say, okay, just, there is fear. And probably I'm going to be thinking a lot of things that making a lot of it true. And can I just for, and it doesn't take very long. It does not take very long. Can I, can I actually feel my feelings while I am here in this very moment, in this very place that I'm in without trying to control them or get away from them. And if I can, suddenly it opens up the huge range of all the stuff I, I would have said, I wish I had done that. But now we don't need to be reactive to our own emotions. We can have our emotions and even listen to the wisdom of our emotions at the same time as we don't think our emotions are truth tellers. And that suddenly now we need to change course all the time. This is something that's been really powerful for me is really practicing seeing both sides of the story. Mm. You're talking mm -hmm. about how the fear is telling you something. It has wisdom, but it's also hiding something. And mm. both are true. And the, it's yeah. uh, amazing to dive into those kinds of both sides or multiple sides of something. I'm so into both are true. Is there one, is there an example recently that you remember of a story that you flipped? Trouble coming up with one right now. Oh, like, um, yeah, the, the story for me around being a three is a lot about achievement and success. And am I failing? Mm -hmm. And am I doing good enough as you were pointing mm -hmm. to before? Mm -hmm. And so I'd say fairly common, like creating stories for myself of I'm, I'm, this is a failure or I have failed in this. And then seeing the other side of that um, has been really powerful. Like I haven't failed in this. Yeah. It failed me. There is no such thing as failure. There's so many opposites. Right. Right. What was your experience um, working with 
coaches over the years. Anything you want to share about that? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever had a formal coach. I've certainly had mentors. Um, mm-hmm. I've done the CLG forum, which is led by a coach and is in a group setting. So I've certainly learned a lot from that. I did that for a couple of years and helped me become much more aware of the kind of continual patterns of mind chatter, the patterns in interacting with other people and build some of these tools that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd love to also hear from you about if someone's listening to this and thinking, what? Like, Mm I, I would thought I was here to learn about startups. Like you mm-hmm. seem so touchy feely, squishy, <laughs> like, yeah. like what, how, what tie this back to how this is going to help me be a better startup founder. Like what would you yeah. say to that person? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess there's, there are lots of ways that it helps you be a more successful startup founder, probably a big bucket that we can just easily name and and move into more nuanced stuff. The big bucket would be um, the reason that most startups fail is because of co-founder drama. And many, many startups begin with a co-founder. The, the solo founder road, in my experience, is even more challenging. And you'll see the challenges of that show up in the fam- in your, you know, in the immediate family, in the in the relationship with your your romantic partner, your spouse, your children, and with your own body, with your health. And so if part of how you win in the game of startup is staying in the game, coaching is really, it's just such an easy investment. And what, what a lot of first-time founders have been surprised by is that their boards are willing, not just willing, but eager to support you and to approve of you investing in a really good executive coach. And it actually might even make more sense for you to have a really great coach than it does for a leader in a larger corporation. Because to your point earlier, Miles, once bureaucracy is built, there are fewer ways to go off the rails. But (laughs) earlier, it's really, and also you have support built in, right? You have a, you have an HR team, you have a HR business partner, you have colleagues, you have a manager who knows how to be a manager, who's learned how to be a manager and who manages up. There's a lot of accountability and it's just the, you know, not, not that that's an easy job at all. It's not one that I think I'll ever try to do again, but it's, but it's different in that there's a level of stability around it and that you're not being asked to change who you are every couple months. But one of the reasons I'm so passionate about working with working with people who are in that startup game, you know, most of my clients have like, you know, they might come to me with less than a hundred employees. Um, they might come to me less than 50, usually more, but it's, but it's a ride around there. But it's, it's so important that those leaders can learn to evolve more quickly than their company needs them to. Because if they don't, the company won't make it. And so actually there's much more leverage in investing early. And culture gets built. And by the time you get to 100 employees, you're talking about trying to tame a stallion. The culture is off to the races and it's got a mind of its own. And so getting really clear on how you're showing up as a leader and just being supported so that you don't, you know, suffer the the depression and the 
imposter syndrome and anxiety and like the self-destructive behaviors and the lack of self-care and like all those things that are the things that are this, that destroy founders as, as humans, like just get yourself the support. It, it makes so much sense. And, and boards are usually happy to pay for it. And they often bring us in. So I think that's changed, right? I mean, the stereotype of VCs is, oh, like replace the founder with an experienced CEO. And that mm-hmm. I think was more common roll back 10, 15 years. Yeah. It seems that since then, more and more investors and boards are embracing, keep the founder CEO and a willingness to invest. But why? Mm-hmm. Like, why are they thinking that way now? Do you know? Well, the leadership of the founder impacts everything. I think that there, a lot has come to light including with the thought leadership of several of my, my, my past clients. And I, I want to appreciate them without naming them, but around um, the mental health challenges that founders face when they are not supported. And, uh, it's not only is it a grueling job, it's one that wraps up your whole entire identity in the most vulnerable of ways. It it's one where often there is a huge financial number at stake and I, I talked earlier about how we often begin companies non-consciously to resolve our shadow issues. And, and actually it's a lot to work out our family dynamics. And so there's just such a sensitivity around the success and quote failure. And I don't even like to use that word, but a lot of, a lot of founders do, right. There's so much sensitivity around it. And so I think there's been a real awakening in the venture community about the cost, the cost of those, like the, the forgotten founders, the ones who don't hit it big and what they lost and went through, then there's just the co- the ongoing cost to those who are still in the game. And then by the time they scale, then we're seeing, we're seeing really self-destructive and erratic behavior that does impact the company significantly. And, and is this, and is coming from a source of real pain. So there's been a, a, an accountability on the venture community to take responsibility for how sustainable this ecosystem is. And we all know that it has its major um, challenges just because of the very nature and the model of it. And there's a lot of good work being done to address that, but I'm really happy to see that there's now an open dialogue. And I would, I would credit Jerry Colonna and the folks at Reboot for taking, you know, playing a part in bringing this to light and including Jerry telling his own story um, where he suffered from, you know, intense depression and that him bringing that to light, I think was also a catalyst. As a VC who's well-respected for a number mm-hmm. of investments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that that certainly had an impact. You, you were talking about founders working out unconsciously something in, in mm-hmm. trying to, uh, or in starting their business. Yeah. And I, I also wonder, is that, is that at all connected with, um, zone of genius? So you're talking about like some trauma, uh, like being a reason to get into something. Do you ever see founders also connecting it with their zone of genius that they're really good at something and that becomes what their organization is about? Oh my gosh. I mean, to me, it's, it's just, it's two slightly different angles on the same geode, you know, zone of genius seems it, there seems to be a connection to the way that we traumatize ourselves, the way that we like take in events and stimuli 
in early life and we, and they become traumatic. And I think the two can work really well hand in hand. So yes, I I've been inside of startups where, uh, the zone of genius of a founder would be just exceptionally clear boundaries. I worked, I worked with one like that, just so non tangled. And I remember we had just really clear and, and not, it didn't feel rigid at all, but it was just, if it's urgent, you send a chat message. If it's not urgent, you put it into Jira or Trello or whatever you're using and you, and you put it in the place where the work is going to happen. You don't interrupt somebody's flow. And if it needs to be talked out more, you don't go bump them on the shoulder. You already have a meeting set up for you to deal with that if you need it. And you'll only use the number of minutes that you need. And, and then don't put anything in email unless you want to send someone an article to read for fun over the weekend, if they want to, it was just, it was so clean. It was so clean. And it was just vacation really was vacation and people could focus and get their work done. And it was, it was wonderful. That person has since, um, kind of gotten on the CLG bandwagon as well. So shout out, you know who you are. And so that's, that's one zone of genius I've seen. I've seen, I've seen one that had just had the biggest heart and was a, from a small town and wanted life to feel like a small town of people who know you well, that you trust and you love. And then that, that was like certainly the purpose of the product, but also was manifest in the relationships and the culture that you saw inside of that company. And, you know, years after that company shuttered, those people are still like dear, dear friends. And another one where it's recognizing that humans create technology because ultimately, you know, that's just the human thing. It's, it's what humans do. It's an impulse. We don't necessarily do it because it's smart. It's just what humans do and it will get created and it doesn't need to be because it makes so much sense, but it's how we create great stories. And that company is, I'm not sure if I can mention their name. So I won't, but that company has built some of the most groundbreaking technology, you know, of the century. And yes, I absolutely see the zone of genius coming through. Now you have, you have an online resource for people who want to explore their own zone of genius, right? I do. Yes. Oh, I got to do a whole process with the group yesterday. It was so much fun. Yeah. So I have, I have a, an extensive zone of genius process and I, I do that. It, it takes a, a couple months. I do that with, with groups, um, or it can be accelerated if we combine it into a number of days, but I also have a, a, a like a, a workshop where you can do your own work on your own. And, uh, I guide you through a process. So you, you start it, you watch it, you have a piece of paper and I take, I take it from there. And an hour later, you know, you have so much more clarity on what's in your zone of genius. What's your zone of excellence, what's your zone of competence and your zone of incompetence. And in that, that zone of genius place, when you're living in ease and flow and timelessness, that's, that's really where there's so much aliveness and opportunity. If you can live there primarily. And, you know, once you figure out what that zone of genius looks like and feels like, then you can be in organizing how you operate as a leader around that. And that's really, that's how you learn to delegate and, you know, let things go and all that good stuff that is the coaching work. Yeah. So you can get that at Keneal.com. I think it's a Keneal.com slash yes. Wonderful. And any other ways to follow you online? Sure. I'm at uh, at Keneal.is on Instagram. 
I'm at Keneal on Twitter and I'm newly experimenting with TikTok where I am at Keneal.is as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Miles. It was really fun talking to you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 